And it came to pass in the 601st year, that's Noah's age, measured, these events are measured by his age. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covenant of the ark and looked. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all the flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. This is the world that Noah came off the ark into from that experience going through the flood. So the sheer terror of going on the ark and then when it's all happened and the judgment came and the ark would have risen and just, just the, it's unfathomable. It, it really is unfathomable to really try and meditate upon Noah's life, the evil he saw while building the ark. Then the experience of waiting in the ark for a week and then the floods beginning and then the, 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 maybe the cries of people, but realizing that only you and the animals and your family on that ark are the only surviving creatures uh, that would be land creatures, if you will, that survived the flood. That all that beautiful stuff we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 has all come to an end because man's sin is so far reaching and what the death that Adam brought into the universe, how it affects all the animal kingdom, our entire planet, our solar system, our galaxy, the entire universe. And the Bible makes that very clear that entropy affects the entire universe. Things are winding down. There's a death sentence over the whole universe, but of course we know that Jesus Christ, through the cross, the resurrection, is going to redeem everything, has redeemed everything, and will bring to fruition that redemption at his second coming and the new heaven and the new earth that's described for us in the New Testament. But for Noah, what a just an amazing thing to go through. And then to come through that judgment, and it's almost like a science fiction movie, but it's not. This really happened. You got a day planner, you got a calendar you use on your phone. There's a day on your calendar that if you go back far enough, about 4,500 years, there's a day when God said to Noah, go out of the ark. See, last week we looked at what God said to him, come into the ark. And now he says, go out of the ark. And everything that he and his wife and his children and his daughters-in-laws are going to go out to is nothing. You talk about a post-apocalyptic movie. All the apocalyptic movies in the last 20 years, whatever, and before that. You think about, you know, Return to the Planet of the Apes and those kind of movies from the 60s. I mean, just anything you can draw from in your memory banks of what, how different things would be. What could match this? They had a perfect environment that they lived in, even in the pre-flood world, even after the fall. And what an interesting contrast Adam and Noah are. Think about this as well, because God made Adam a complete man, a perfect man without death in him, brought his wife from him, a perfect woman without death in her. In the Garden of Eden with perfection, everything's herbivore, there's no sin, 
No animal attacks another animal. They all eat plants. It's a total vegan happy world for sure and for real. And that's the way it was designed. The entire planet. And then when Adam fell, he's removed from the garden, but he's still in a pre-flood world. And when God called Adam, the first commandment he gives Adam is be fruitful and multiply according to Genesis 1. And then, of course, you will not eat from this tree declared for us in Genesis 2 and 3, the place of self-determination and choice to submit to God or rebel against God. But, you know, Adam was the head of the race, but in a lot of ways, Noah is the head of the race because he's the one by which all humanity is saved. We are here tonight because of Noah and his three sons and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All of us are descendants. In fact, we're just going to see it in the next few chapters that every single human being on this planet, the Bible declares emphatically without apology, every human being comes through these people, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth of Noah. So Noah saved the human race through his obedience. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He saved the human race for the redemption that would come. So through his descendants come all humanity. Eight billion people are all descendants on this planet through Noah and his three sons. But also the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is promised through his descendants, through Shem and then Abraham and then Jacob, changed name to Israel, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, house of David. And so the messianic promises too. It all came through Noah. So he's like the head of the human race like a second time. But think this is how sin affects things, even on the reboot, because that's really what this text is about. It's about second chances. It's about new beginnings. It's about stepping out into the unknown, into a brave new world. That's where we're going to go with our application. But we really need to get the context. Think about the reboot. Adam, when he had his wife, it's like a honeymoon. Two perfect human beings. It's the honeymoon. Noah and his wife, they had an anniversary with a bunch of animals. They had an anniversary with zoo on a boat. They're coming off the boat, and it's the anniversary. It's not the honeymoon. Even when Adam and Eve were expelled, they into a pre-flood world, it was a fall from the garden, but it was still almost like your perfect day in Kauai every day kind of a thing. Noah and his wife, they come into what's going to become the Ice Age. These seasons, these incredible geological changes atmospheric changes, climate changes on this planet. That's their world they're going into. It's so different. When you meditate upon it, you just think, wow, like, it's crazy. So Adam is the strength of his youth, and his wife is the beauty of the flower of her youth. Noah and his wife, they're like, they're not grandparents yet, but they're going to be grandparents, and they look like grandparents, Okay, in a pre-flood world, primeval world, look, they look. But it's through them that God is, has saved humanity. He is the God of the second chance. And he's a God who, when self-determination and free will look so catastrophic, his sovereignty will step in and preserve things. Like he said, Jesus said about his second coming, unless the Lord intervened for the elect's sake, none would survive those last days. Credible hero of the faith, Noah, his wife. And what they went through, it's, it could never be betrayed properly in any type of movie or anything. It's so far-reaching. But as we think about application, and we paint this panoramic of what, how different when they stepped off the ark it looked than how it looked when they got on the ark, I think here's something we can relate to. Many times in our life, we have changing environments. We change 
we leave home and we go away to school maybe and we never come back and live with our parents or maybe we do. There's just different situations. If you're in the military, you move around a lot and things look different. You live here, you live there. My earliest memory is growing up on Guam. Someone said to me just uh, the other day that uh, about living on Guam, they said it's really hot and humid. I go, you know, those are my earliest childhood memories in the early 60s when my dad was a Marine Corps recruiter during the Vietnam War and we were stationed there. My earliest memories are Guam and it's hot. I remember they have these memories of the heat and the humidity of Guam there in the South Pacific. Then I remember coming back to Cleveland when my dad went to the Vietnam War and what that was like. And then we adjusted with the grandparents that were there on Coventry Road and going to Catholic Mass every week with my grandparents at the Catholic Church right down the street from where they live. We'd walk to it. And then my dad came back from the Vietnam War and we lived in Quantico. And then we lived in Charlottesville where UVA is, where University of Virginia is. And then we came to California. We lived in Carlsbad. Then my parents got divorced and they both ended up moving to Vista. Like Things are always changing. And I met my wife and we lived in Vista for three years, and then we moved to Virginia, and then we moved to Vermont, and then we came back to North County, San Diego, and then we were called to Orange County when Broderson called us from England and said, would you like to come on south with Pastor Chuck? And we went for it in early 2000. And there was a time we let go of the house in Huntington, excuse me, the house in Costa Mason. We were renters, and God eventually opened us the door to live in Huntington Beach, where we've been. There's just different seasons. There's a time we had like one kid, Hannah, driving across country. Then we've got two kids. Leah is born in Virginia. Then Timmy's born in Virginia. Then we live in Vermont. And then Luke's born when we come back to California. Things change. Then the kids grow up. And then there's grandkids. And there's all these different things. Nothing stays the same. There's a brave new world all the time that we're dealing with. And there's a time, like it says in Ecclesiastes 3, where we plant. And there's a time where we uproot what's planted. For us in our journey serving the Lord in ministry, we just have, I've saved all the license plates. So I've got the Virginia license plate from the 90s with the Cardinal and the Dogwood, and I've got the Vermont one, which is still the same. I even got the Ohio plates from our old country Squire station wagon that my mom and dad had in the 60s. Nothing stays the same. There's always a brave new world. As much as you'd want things to stay the same, they never stay the same. Things change. And Sometimes things are forced upon us, radical change, not like a global flood. But sometimes things are forced upon us that we just don't see coming. We're forced out of a job. We're forced out of a living situation. We're forced out of a relationship. We're, we're forced out of a country. I mean, if you study human history, these are things that most people deal with in every timeline wherever you live. Dramatic changes. Political decisions that are made that profoundly affect you. Imagine being Jewish in Europe being Jewish in 1929 versus being Jewish in 1939, how fast that changed. Because your religious and, in many cases, ethnic makeup. Things can change rapidly. Things can change dramatically and rapidly socially and personally. And there are times we want to stay in an arc because even because we, we find function in transition, and we find function even in dysfunction, you can make the ark your home. And contextually, Noah did not get out the ark till God said, come out. And every step he took off that ark, it was a step further from everything he knew and the shock of seeing the world so different than the world he knew. 
And yet, as much as all dramatically changed, there are certain things that remain the same. And even this week, meeting with a missionary who came by to say hi, as they're talking about potentially adjusting to coming back into living in the States after 10 years abroad, and laying out certain scenarios, we could do this, we could do that, they were all shocking. Every scenario was a shocking scenario from what they knew. Try and make it in California. Well, we know what that looks like if you're newlyweds or, and you're you know, married a year or two and you got a couple, one kid. It's like, hey, we know the Southern California thing. That's why everyone moves out of state. And, and just talking it through, there was no scenario that wasn't shocking for this, these individuals I was speaking with. All of them were a shocking, dramatic change from everything they knew and their kids knew for the last 10 years. And life's like that. We get moved around. If you're military, you're used to it and you prepare yourself for it. And if you're in the ministry, you might be used to it and you prepare yourself for it. But sometimes dramatic things happen that are out of your control. So when we come to what we don't know, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, we fall back on what we do know. And there's some amazing insights from this passage that we can look to tonight to be inspired and encouraged by. In this brave new world where every step was a step of faith into the unknown, go out of the ark. He said, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. This is my first point. And this is what I ask people when they feel called to go out in ministry or called to go somewhere that are married for married couples. I say, are you and your husband in unity? Are you and your wife in unity on this? Because... If you and your, if your family unit is in unity, you can go for this step of faith. You can go for this thing. You can go for that thing or let go of this and have this radical change. In the marriage, the two become one. Now, obviously, there's single people here. There's widows and widowers here and divorcees. And it is what it is. But there's a context for all of us that the Holy Spirit can show you right now as I'm talking about this. When we went through Colossians, the Lord really reminded all of us of the family unit and how important the family unit is when we're in Colossians 3. And this is something God has been impressing on my heart over and over in a very prophetic word way in my life this year. That family is family. And God has ordained and blessed the family unit. And that's why the social attacks of redefining family and destroying family are so insidious and evil and demonic in our society. By trying to redefine what a family looks like. And listen, God's definition of family is, have you not read, Jesus said, how he made them male and female. He made them, created with purpose, male and female, and the two become one. And that's the ideal plan. That's God's plan that marriage is a man and a woman and he determines their gender and he's created us all with purpose. To this day, there are no accidents. There are effects of sin that affect uh, different vulnerabilities of our human bodies and our minds perhaps. But God is able to redeem and use all of it for his glory. Who made the deaf, the dumb, and the blind, said God to Moses. Is it not I, the Lord? Or as Jesus said, this blindness is for God's glory in the Gospel of John. The family unit is so precious to the Lord. And I've learned I can face any brave new world with peace in my home. When you have unity in your marriage, or unity in your home, that's, that's the core, that's the heart, that's the heartbeat of the whole human experience. That you're tr- We're tribal, 
God's designed us to be tribal, and each family unit becomes its own new family unit. So for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one. So each family unit is meant to be like a little church unit in of itself and has that relationship that only exists within the family, the covenant between the man and the woman and the stewardship of the children. And it's so special, and God has blessed it and ordained it at the highest level of all the human experiences. It's good to be part of a village, but a village doesn't raise the family. Godly parents, led by the Lord, raise the family. And Noah built an ark with godly fear for the saving of himself and his family. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. That's why he's in the Hall of Faith, because he inspired his family, we saw this last week, in the building of the ark. And as I said, if you're an evangelist and no one else comes forward but your family, then that's a good good crusade. Because his family live with him and they know us best and we're not perfect and we all have our failures and shortcomings and blemishes but the family unit is redeemed by Christ and it it's so special it's the heartbeat of everything so we love our wives as Christ loves the church and we respect and submit to our husbands as unto the Lord and God blesses the family unit we honor our father and our mother and we don't provoke our children to wrath but we we glorify the Lord in our family unit so when you go into a brave new world like a military family moving around or a ministry family going from here to there or losing letting go of this house and losing it and moving here into a rental thing or whatever I have found I can do anything and face anything with my family I've also found if I'm not in unity, I can't do anything. You see, everything around us goes through variables and flex modes. But the consistent that we can establish is the love, the forgiveness, the compassion, and the empathy within our family to love and serve one another to the glory of Jesus Christ in that family unit, whoever makes up our family unit. And to pass that on to the next generation and the generation behind them. I've never understood how people neglect their families for pursuit of ministry or pursuit of possessions. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing greater in the human experience than the family unit And we can all accept responsibility to bring faith, our faith, in Christ into that family unit, to be a blessing to that family unit, to live that life of faith and inspire the rest of the family, whether it be above us, beside us, adult siblings, or our children, or our children's children. But our faith, our faith shown through love and obedience with compassion and humility and forgiveness has the power. It is the catalyst that brings us through the the human experience. In a brave new world, in, in starting over and new beginnings, the family doesn't change. Your family unit is your family unit. And I think of the Fosters, Pastor Jeremy, and his family. And I've known Jeremy a long time. And of course, he's now living in Boise, Idaho. But Him and his wife, Cheryl, met in Alaska doing ministry, and they knew right away they were meant for each other, and they were married about six months later. Now, he showed up at Calvary Costa Mesa in the second year of worship generation there in the sanctuary at Calvary Costa Mesa. And they had just had Emily. They had Danny, their oldest son, and they had Emily. 
And they were living in Los Angeles. He was doing substitute school teaching and then ministry with some Calvary chapels in L.A. and doing ministry with homeless people. Then God brought them down here. They lived in an apartment in what's known as Gospel Gulch, where they lived for a number of years, and he taught seventh grade science, biology, at Calvary Chapel Junior High School. And then the same time they approached him to become a principal, we felt God was calling him to be the associate pastor full-time here at this church, and he chose this. God confirmed to us that was the right decision. And then they got that house, the townhome they got in Tustin, which is still a miracle how they got that. And then when they, we prayed you know, for them recently, just a few weeks ago, you know, the kids all grew up. I mean, Micah was born when this church was in existence, and then, you know, Micah's getting bigger, and he left behind his friends just two weeks ago, but Danny's been away at college at Boise State for a couple years, and Emily graduated high school, and she's flying airplanes with the Air Guard, and is going to do missionary aviation stuff. So I've watched the foster family grow. We've watched the foster family grow, and we watched Jeremy be the coach of the surf team. Then we watched him be the coach of the soccer team. And we watched him all his experiences. And then watching this last year, I saw it before you did, but him saying, I believe God's going to stir us up and move us on. And now it's a brave new world for Mr. Foster. Just two weeks ago on a Monday, after moving from here on a Thursday night, on a Monday morning, he went to his first day of work as a civil engineer at an engineering firm in Boise. That's a pretty brave new world. I mean, that he got the job is miraculous because he's rebooting his career. He does have a degree from Oregon State in engineering. But he hasn't been in the workforce for 20 years with engineering. And he got the job. And they left everything they knew here to go there. But the one constant in all of that, apart from having friends like the Karen Jellos or Luke Caldwell and other friends like that there, is it's Jeremy and Cheryl, the family, and they're in it together. They're in it together. We said goodbye to them right after the Lopez's were there, and then we let them say goodbye to their house. You know, you got to give people space to say goodbye to their house. Do you know what I'm saying? If you've ever been there, like we, well, see you around. Just like the Karen Jellas, they show up. You know, they're bound to show up, right? They all come home in some sequence. Let them say goodbye to the house. But they were going to drive up together. And that family unit that we watched grow up that came from Los Angeles, that lived in Gospel Gulch, that moved to Tustin, is now in Boise. It's the family unit. They've changed environments and they've changed locations, but they're still living by faith. That faith is still working in them, and that's the constant. So when it's a, a, a change in environment, it's a huge step of faith to come off everything you know and move toward what you don't know, and you've gone from the bliss to the ice age. Man, the family that is full of faith, that is loving, that is forgiving, that is gracious and compassionate and empathetic and real. We might even use the word organic, just real. That family that's real with Jesus, they're going to do just fine. And I'm glad in all the changes I've ever been called to since I've been serving the Lord, I haven't had to face any of them alone. It's you and your wife and your family. And I, I really like that. Now, if I have to face it down the stretch without, you know, you just never know what life brings you. Just ask Job when you get to heaven. But nonetheless, the Lord is always with us. You and your family, come on.
you and your wife. And that's, so whatever your, whoever your family is, just think about that. And that, those are things that really matter. Those are the things that really, really matter. Then he said, a uh, second thing we see is be fruitful and multiply. That's in verse 17. Be fruitful and multiply. Well, like I said, that's what God told Adam. That's the first commandment. If I asked you what's the first commandment in the Bible, you might not think the first one is be fruitful and multiply. It's the first one on record. The human race has got to get a reboot. Have children, have lots of children. And they were fruitful and they did multiply. And we'll get in the table of nations and just right around the corner here. Be fruitful and multiply. So they're coming from the transition of what they've known, stepping out of what's not known, but they're together as a family, the consistency in the midst of all the uncertainty. And then here comes that, that familiar frequency, the word of God. The word of God. Be fruitful and multiply. If you're going to reboot the human race, God's going to say the same thing he said to Adam. Now, again, God said it to Adam, and he's young and strong and handsome, and she's beautiful, and they're naked and unashamed. Noah, his wife, their kids, grown up, everything, but be fruitful and multiply. You see, whenever it's a reboot or a redo or a new beginning, God's word doesn't change. His word is the consistency through all the inconsistencies of the human experience. His word is the known and every unknown. From Genesis to Revelation and every generation of the church, he has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to be reminded of these things when we think about whole new beginnings and radical changes and great upheaval that come to our lives by choice, by chance, if you will, that the Lord's allowed, or by social upheaval and these sorts of things. It all comes through the hands of the Lord. Like John the Baptist said, a man or a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from above. And, and God allows these things. Like Job said to his wife, we've accepted blessings. Can we not accept adversity from the Lord? It all serves a purpose. And God's word does not change in that. So the beauty of God's word is that it never changes. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fade away. And he's given us his word to be thoroughly equipped for everything he has in our life. So as we go through the word of God, on our own, and we let God speak to us. It's faithful today to be working effectively in those who believe, as we're told in 1 Thessalonians, for us tonight, as it was to bygone generations, it sang some of those hymns when they were originally written. As it goes back to the Moravians and those German missionaries who went out and just went for it, you know, a couple hundred years ago. As it goes back through all the different faithful men and women in the church age, wherever they lived, if they lived in the time of Attila the Hun, or whenever they lived, Charlemagne, whatever, God knows. And whether they're in the organized church under the Pope or, or rebel churches or state churches during the Reformation, God knows his own and he knows them by name and his spirit confirmed to them they were his. And they were saved the same way we are by faith in Jesus Christ. And they were born in the spirit just as we have been. And they came through their life experiences, however beautiful or difficult they were, by the word of God guiding them, leading them, directing them and transforming them. And see, whatever we face whatever our children are going to face or our children's children are going to face or our children's children's children are going to face, this word will not change. It will be life to them. It'll be a lamp unto their feet. It'll be their cleansing element in their life. It will remain the same. 
It will always be living and powerful. So even though planet Earth's gone from Kauai on your summer vacation to Siberia and the Russian front, God's word has not changed. And that is very encouraging to me when I think about my life and all the uncertainty of my life and my future and the uncertainty of your life and your future. Whatever comes our way, geopolitically, globally, economically, God's word is going to see us through it. God's word is going to see us through it. His word's a comfort. His word is vision. His word is hope. Be fruitful and multiply is just, it's the exact same thing he said to Adam. When we start over with the Lord in a brave new beginning, he's still, it's the word of God. Be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't change. He's changed. He doesn't change. He's the father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. So whatever we might face, whatever uncertainty, when you wake up on a Monday in Boise and you're going to work, can you imagine Jeremy's drive to work two Mondays ago? I mean, you've taken that drive before, right? We moved to Vermont, and I got that job at the Sheraton Hotel. And I, I called it the monkey suit. I wore this green suit, and I, I felt like I was an entertainer. I had a little Joey badge with the Sheraton logo on it. And for a guy getting paid four forty an hour, I was very nervous. I think I was more nervous than my net pay should have had me being nervous. I was just so terrified. It was such an unknown thing. It was just completely, it, it was completely anything other than I'd ever known. And then that's just during the week. You start the church at the Econo Lodge. When you're out, outsiders in Vermont, New England, and you're doing a church in their hotel, they don't care. They just want to rent the rooms out and make the money. But you show up with your friends that are from out of state too, and you're doing a church in their hotel in their meeting room and the other meeting rooms where the kids meet. You know what they look at when you, what they look at you like? When you show up to do church and you got a bin with the children's ministry supplies, look, this is a home game. When Heidi and Garrett, everybody moved the children's ministry supplies from point A to point B, it's like, it's a church. Yeah, it's a church. Listen, when you walk into the Econo Lodge in Burlington, Vermont, and they think you're a cult, and you got a bin with children's ministry supplies, the looks they give you, man, it's a brave new world. It's a brave new world. You know, God might give you an ice age. Maybe you're in an ice age. Maybe he's going to give all of us an ice age. Hey, vacation in Kauai, maybe it's over. You just never know. But I'll tell you what got me through those 14 months was my morning devotions and my time with the Lord. And I'll tell you, it's the same thing that gets me through everything I'm facing now. And sometimes his word seems alive. Sometimes it seems kind of flat. But I just keep plowing. Another chapter of Matthew, a couple, I, a couple chapters, Solomon, Ecclesiastes, I write in my journal. Be fruitful and multiply. Do what's the obvious to do. Read God's word, hear God's word, do God's word. I knew a number of military people that walked strong with the Lord, both Navy and Marine Corps. And, and those guys, and Army, and those guys that were all in for the Lord, like, they, they, the Lord was over everything they did. So if they're in Iwakuni, Japan, Chris Deans is, you know, he was a worship leader in Virginia Beach, but, you know, now he's going to Iwakuni, Japan. He seeks out the fellowship. He seeks out the brethren right there on base. He tries to connect with the chaplain. And that's who we are. That's what we do. But we make time and be fruitful and multiply. So when the, when the ark opens up and God says, get out in a brave new world, in a new beginning, take your Bible with you. 
and let that be your standard in whatever you're doing. What you did here when you lived there and what you do there when you lived there. Hey, hey, neighborhood's different. Neighbors are different. God's word's the same. Be fruitful and multiply. And really, you just say be fruitful because that's what God's word is. When we obey God's word, we are fruitful. And then there's a third thing. In verse 20, it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord. In the brave new world of new beginnings and all things that we can face that we don't know, that we don't understand, he came off the ark and he built the altar. And when Job got all the bad news in Job chapter 1, if you know the text, it says, when the last person came and this happened, and the Sabaeans, and this happened, it says that he fell on his face, and you know what it says? And he worshiped. When he lost everything in one day, in a matter of minutes, if not hours, it says he worshiped the Lord. When you get the worst news in the world, praise Jesus. When you get the best news in the world, praise Jesus. Build an altar. The altar is the place of worship. It's the place of praise. It's a place where we can say, Lord, you are over all things. You are bigger than these doctors. You are bigger than these, these politicians. You're bigger than these neighbors or my boss and these coworkers. You're bigger than it all. And we worship the Lord. The brave new beginning and, and starting over and these things, going into your ice age, if you will. Man, your family, the clear word of God, but be a worshiper. Build an altar. Build an altar, and we're going to see as we go through Genesis, altar builders, people who build altars. It was their expression of devotion to the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Maybe they sang to, maybe Noah sang a song. Maybe he had a poem in his mind. We don't know. But he built an altar, and he sacrificed clean animals, which would have been atonement and a covering for his sinful nature. But he built an altar. There's a lot of altars in the rest of the Old Testament. And the ultimate altar is Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. But this is the first one. You don't read of any other altars before this. But he came off that ark in a brave new world with a new beginning. And we're going to worship the Lord. That's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to worship the Lord. We're going we're gonna to build this altar and as you go through the Old Testament again, you, you have certain things like the Ebenezer stone or the 12 stones from the Jordan River that the, took one for each tribe when they came into the Promised Land. And their altars were built and memorials were built to attest to the Lord's faithfulness. But this altar did involve sacrifice. It's, it's an act of worship right here. And it's a reminder how costly redemption is. Because I really like animals. And if I spent a year on a boat with those animals, it'd be really hard to sacrifice one of those animals. That'd be very hard to do for me. But every animal sacrifice from this time on until Christ came on the cross points to Christ and necessity that we must be forgiven through the shedding of blood, the just for the unjust. These animals were a type of Christ that Noah offered up because they're the just for the unjust. It's the blood of clean animals for unclean human beings. So even in a reboot, even in an ice age, even in a, in a, a new beginning, 
there's going to always be need for that cleansing that comes from the Lord. And there's going to need to be that place. We build that altar where we worship God. We come and we praise his name. I think it's so important in the human experience. You can sing songs of praise when things are going fantastic. And you can sing songs of praise when your whole world's caving in. You can sing the same songs in different seasons of life, what you're going through. The body of Christ, when we gather here and we sing songs and we pray with one another and we speak life into one another, it's, it, this is our altars, Jesus, and who he is and what he's done for us. But we come and we worship. We sing praises to the Lord and we acknowledge the Lord. It really is Matthew 6, 33, where it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all those other things will be added to you. That altar is putting Christ before all other things in our life when we build those altars. And we say, in this brave new world, Lord, you told me to go. I got my family. I know your word's commandments. Your word's not going to change. It's a lamp to my feet. And you've called me to be a worshiper in every human experience I face. So I'm going to worship you on the top of this mountain and I'm going to worship you in the bottom of this valley. I'm going to worship you on the family vacation in Kauai, and I'm going to worship you in the Ice Age because you are God Almighty, and all things are made by you and for you, and you all things consist. This is the lesson of Noah coming off the ark. And maybe God's speaking to you, go out of the ark. Maybe he's, got, maybe he's brought you through something like this. Family, the obvious word, and a worshiper. It'll do in every season of life.